Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. I'm Leonard Buller, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Indiana University. Excited to be talking with Dr. Buller today. I'm Kevin Zahn. I'm an academic hip and knee surgeon at Indiana University, and I am Lenny's junior partner. So any questions or concerns about what is said today can be directed to him. Jesse Wolfstad, I'm an academic orthopedic surgeon in Toronto, Canada, and also thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Bolo today. All right. So today we're going to talk with Dr. Uh, Bolonesi, a Durham native surgeon at Duke University and former president of AUKUS. Go ahead and introduce yourself if you don't mind, and then we'll get started. Yeah, thanks. All you guys appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast with you. Yeah, I'm uh, Mike Bolognese. I've been at uh, actually Duke, really a large portion of my career. I was a medical student here, resident here, and did a year of fellowship training at University of Utah with Aaron Hoffman, and then came back on faculty here. And and I've been here since then. It's the only job I've had. And Mike asked, who we all know, is likes likes to make a joke of the fact that I, I I don't think I actually ever signed a contract back then when I started. So that's like a little jokey and I have going. But it was a little different when I started. It was a little bit more of a handshake. But Durham native, as you mentioned, so I'm still at home and enjoy being here. So it's great. It's a little tough for me, just a little background, maybe more information than needed. But I went to undergrad. I think it's the timing's appropriate, but went to undergrad and played a little football at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And in reference to when we're recording this podcast, there's a fairly significant basketball game coming up. You're not supposed to be split allegiant, but, but I sort of am. But I'm probably pulling for the Tar Heels. So just... Uh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> you can't, I'm here in Duke Hospital right now. I do have like a you know lab coat with the D on it here. But I'm, uh, I'm, trying, I'm in a room where hopefully no one heard me say that, I guess. So we're video recording. I'm going to watch That's for Coach right. K, K right behind your shoulder. Yeah. Exactly. I, yeah. fortunately, unfortunately, we know that K already left. They left Tuesday with the team, although my wife's flying down to a separate event now, and she was just on the plane with one of the one of K's daughters, who's a good friend. So you better hope, hope they win. Otherwise, you won't have a job at Duke anymore after yeah. this. <laughs> That's, right. yeah. That's why I had to split allegiance for sure. Great. Well, really, we wanted to pick your brain uh, yeah. about being a president of AUKUS, we have a lot of young listeners who have aspirations of being leaders within AUKUS, getting involved. But we also really wanted to talk a little bit about practice model, practice setup for people trying to come out and learn more about what job options are out there. So you mentioned you've been in Durham for a while, but the practice (laughs) landscape has changed a lot. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, Lenny, for sure. So it's interesting. So, uh, you know, work at Duke, and you definitely have to consider that to be a sort of an academic position for sure. But interestingly, we have a private practice at Duke called the Private Diagnostic Clinic. It's a very unique sort of employment model. We're actually K-1s, so not W-2s, and sort of self-employed, believe it or not. The challenge is that really the way we sort of make our numbers, if you will, is true receipt minus expenses. And so it's interesting as you might assume, because we're in this, in that academic model, we don't have a lot of ancillary revenue stream, right? So it's, it's a challenge, particularly as reimbursement has decreased, particularly for what we all do, you know, hip and knee arthroplasty, and just, you know, again, to be relevant to timing and things going on around us, we're in negotiations to sort of create a new practice, if you will, obviously more aligned with the health system, because to really sort of be competitive and get the best people here at Duke, and that means I obviously pay people appropriately, We've got to do some things that sort of recognize the work that orthopedic surgeons do, particularly hip and knee surgeons, 
around those revenue streams, whether it's imaging, PT, even things like surge center ownership or joint ventures around surgery centers and stuff. So we're in like a time of a potential change, pretty significant change. And that private practice I referenced has actually been in place at Duke, I think it, about 90 years now. So it sort of started right when the medical center and medical school started. And it worked really well for a long time. But the, again, this challenge around reimbursement is, has obviously changed things. So I guess to, to be specific, it's a very competitive landscape. And maybe where you guys are, you have the same sort of thing where there's competitive practices around you, be them academic, be them private. And North Carolina, particularly the central part of the state, is very competitive. And there's a lot of large health systems obviously vying for the patients that are here. And it's a rapidly growing place, the Triangle particular, that's Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. And so it's, it's sort of a hotspot for a lot of the uh, see larger health systems. So where do you see the future going, the practice model as you start to consider new things and yeah. new options? Where do you see the future in the next five years? And then yeah. maybe more broadly speaking, we'll get into some of the CMMI stuff and yep. some of the things that you guys are doing to try yeah. and own more of a, a global bundle. Yeah. So a couple of things. Here, here are my thoughts. I mean, let's just say, let's frame this for the finishing fellowship and you know, what, what should you be looking for? I mean, I think in the academic model, if that's where you're headed, I think you do got to sort of um, ask those questions about, honestly, it's a little awkward, but compensation and how do you, how do you recognize appropriate compensation for the work done by the hip and knee surgeon? And that, you guys know this, that's to, to the total, you know, DRG payment that goes to the hospital or even same to the surgery center. And so I think going forward, we got to figure out how if our CPT reimbursement, you know, it's clearly been attacked or affected negatively. I mean, we've got to figure out how, you know, it's still recognized what you're, what you're bringing to the, to the center, to the hospital, to the health system. So I think that's the change that, that uh, you know, that we got to see happen. And that's what we got to work to. There's no question. You know, I think we also have to, I think, push really hard for, again, whether you call it ownership, whether it's a joint venture no matter where you work, you're going to be doing outpatient arthroplasty, right? And again, you should be, most times you're helping develop that practice or that model. And, and you know, you, that has to be recognized and your value has to be recognized. Um, and you should, you should be, you should have access to that. I mean, that should be part of what, you know, how, how it's recognized the value you bring to your employer. Um, we've got to get that piece. There's just, there's just no question. And then I do think, I won't go into the disease-based bundle specifically, we should be the people that are dictating the bundles, right? Like, so we should be doing the research and that's certainly what we're trying to do at Duke, where we want to go to the payers and propose the bundle because we know what the payment should be, not necessarily rely on the, you know, administrative data from the payer. And look, we got to collaborate with the payer, but like we should be the people that are actually figuring out this subset of patient, you know, the uh, payment for their 90 day episode of care should be X, right? That's the target. We should be the people making the target bright enough. We have the data, we do the work, but that's, that's why I sort of, those are a couple of thoughts about where we should try to get this thing going. So those diagnosis related group, the RG yep. conversations that you have, either as a young surgeon or as the senior leader of a partnership, like you're having, how do you approach that with a hospital and yeah. talk about gain sharing? Yeah. How do you talk about that outside yeah. of the CBT, right? Like we're employed physicians. Jesse's got a unique model in Canada. Yeah. Like Kevin and I work in the same academic practice, which nowadays an academic practice realistically feels more like a hospital employee practice yeah. agree, without yeah. any of the benefits, right? And so we, we just get the CPT and that's what we get. So how can you convince an administrator to see the value of the DRG? Because we're bringing that money to them. Like, what are your strategies? Yeah, our strategies are, I would say, still in, in development, man. I mean, because 
I'm, I'm, proprietary. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah. No, they're the not proprietary. No, no, no. They're, no, they're not more. What it is is like we haven't been successful either. But, yeah. You know, and Justin, Kevin. I guess here where it's that we've had our wins, right? Our wins have been we've gone directly to payers, right? You know, Humana, UHC, and worked with our practice to sort of do a you know a bundle within the practice, and that's just for hip and primary arthroplasty. And so the amount that we beat the tar- you know the target prices those funds come back to our division to help cover costs. So that's not like we did CJR, of course, you know, and that money came back to the department or, or to the health system, so to speak, and is reinvested. And that's good. You know, that's a start. But I think we have, again, have had some success with these direct to payer bundles. Now, again, those targets were dictated by the payer, right? And we said, hey, we, you know, we looked at our data and said, we feel confident about it. We did well. I mean, we, we've created, uh, now is it tons and tons of money? Are we, you know, we're not buying airplanes or anything, but we're, but we're, but, but, I'll, but I'll tell you, it helps, right? It helps cover the cost. Just like you said, we're in a challenging space, right? The CPT dollars aren't going up, right? The NM dollars, you could say, well, they probably got a little better here recently, right? And that's something that he doesn't like that, but they are better, but it's still not enough, right? If you don't have this ancillary revenue stream, right? So again, whatever that list of things are. So you've got to do stuff like that. I think it should be more than even that. I mean, again, like I think it's not just go to the private payer and say, let's work on a bundle and have them propose the price. I think we should be going out and saying, hey, we know these, and you need steering, right? So if you're going to do those type of bundles, you want to make sure that the payer, Blue Cross Blue Shield, is you know part of it, and this doesn't always happen, but part of it is that there's steerage then of patients to you as part of you know uh, collaborating and, and trying to meet the DRG number, so to speak. I mean, I guess I'd say it to you this way. We don't know exactly what more we can do to say, I guess, uh, you know, uh, uh, find other revenue streams because of the limitations of being, say, call it employed, call it an academic practice, or call it a situation where they say, well, legally you can't own the center because of the Stark or something like that, or, or have shares. So I think we've got to be innovative and 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 look for, I guess you're looking for the funds everywhere you can, you know, and that's what we try to do, you know. And so my hope is that the more we sort of, I guess, internally, you know, sort of benchmark ourselves. And, and that includes looking at cost and prices, so to speak. I think we're trying to do, again, is accumulate enough data that we can, can say, this is the number, not what they tell us. A little bit, maybe a change of pace, but as an academic surgeon or academic center, what kind of challenges have you guys had in terms of kind of making your practice efficient, yeah. transitioning yeah. to outpatient orthoplasty, that kind yeah. of thing. A lot of times you work in an academic center, it's kind of like, it's like turning the Titanic to try to make some changes. What kind of challenges have you come across and, and what kind of things have you instituted to help you be successful there? Yeah, I mean, so it's a constant battle, Kevin, and it's been that way ever since I started. And so, you know, to sort of look back, I trained at Duke and finished fellow residency, sorry, there in 2003. And Mike and Keith Barron, uh, I think a lot of us know, were residents, Keith one year above and Mike, I think three or four. And those gentlemen, I think have taught us a lot and others, not just those, but I mean, you know, for, for me, a very significant sort of influence about efficiency, right? So if you go to their centers ever to sort of see how that works, I don't know if it's something you can reproduce in the academic center, but when you see something like that can be done, and for me, that was pretty early in my career, you know, we actually, a long time ago, took a team up from Duke to Columbus, Ohio, and and actually went in there to watch to see how they do it, you know? And I mean, what, what that helped us do, I guess, at the main hospital, and this is probably back around 2007, is at least get them to buy into things like dedicated teams, tracking the metrics around turnover time and making that say for us, part of our co-management agreement was that the metric is turnover time. And so trying to get everybody on the same page to hit that, those targets. 
And, and I think what we were able to do is main hospital at Duke developed what I think you'd have to call reasonably uh, efficient uh, total joint system using two rooms, you know, a, a swing room, dedicated teams. And well, I know we made significant improvements in efficiency. We took that and like everyone, it's a little bit cliche almost, but even before COVID, but certainly during COVID and then turned it into just like trying to do outpatient from the large hospital. We also had sort of the unique situation where our surgery center that, you know, when it was finished being built was sort of right around, well, you know, I guess I'd say midway through sort of the whole COVID experience. And what we did, you know, was it it helped our transition to the outpatient setting because we sort of had been doing it, right? Like a lot of people had to do it. But I guess I have to say a lot of our ability to sort of succeed in the outpatient space has come from watching others do it. And the folks that sort of did it first, and those are, those are some of the people I named and others, you're not going to do what those guys do, say, at the main hospital, right? So, but you might be able to do something that's a dramatic improvement, right, on sort of what's expected. And I think if you, you got to keep pushing. You got to be passionate about it. You got to be there. You got to be the first person in the room sometimes, you know, but I think we've made strides and, and improvements to where it's, a, it's, it's very acceptable. It's a reasonable amount of case volume, but it's uh, always room for improvement. I think that's one of the challenges that we come across is trying to align your goals as best you can with the people who make the decisions in an academic yeah. center, right? Yeah. And they're so totally. often different. And, and yeah, it's the, they want to make everybody jack of all trades, master of none type thing. And that's not what makes the efficient from any, any yeah, perspective, but, right? Yeah. But kept that, you know, I think that that thought process that a lot of say, just let's call nursing leadership will say that people's got to be able to, people have to do everything. That's one to really push on. And it's just our take on that was that you've gotten to this point of efficiency. It's not going to be better if you don't fix that. If you don't fix the fact that there's a dedicated team, then I hear you. We got that pushback quite a bit. But if they don't fix that part, it's really hard. And they should. It's, again, the thought they said, well, we want people to be able to cover this. You're bringing in, you know, what you bring in with your patients to the big hospital that Heaven forbid they even get an inpatient designation. You guys know these numbers, you know, these days. I mean, they should be able to find someone else to go scrub the OB-GYN ramp, okay? <laughs> and I don't mean that negatively. I have a lot of friends in OB-GYN, but, the, you know, the point is that, like, they got to keep the joint room going. And so um, I would push hard on that one. That one, people always say, well, they, we don't have dedicated teams. Well, you got to have them. You got to have them, right? Right. In Canada, they have them everywhere. I know, right, Justice? Uh, God, I was just about to say I would love to have designated teams, we had a similar experience to you. We spent some time with Adolf Lombardi. Um, yeah, right. You know, Keith and Mike weren't there, but they went when Adolf was there. And, you know, I, we had a lot of the same issues that you described, a lot of the institutional inertia here at our center, you know. And so the nurses are so ingrained, like, you know, I used to go and walk my hips myself. And if I didn't, the nurses were telling them, you're not allowed to move out of bed. You have to have a Foley in to pee. You're not allowed to move. And the beauty of, of what we're able to do, there's an ambulatory only academic hospital here mm-hmm. where they don't have any inpatient beds. And so we went down you know, and spent some time with Adolf, saw what they did and tried to model what they did at this ambulatory hospital. And when I always talk about our experience, the thing that I noticed, we were building the program from the ground up at this ambulatory hospital. So there was no one telling us, well, for 20, 30 years, we've been managing our total hips this way or our total knees this way. We were able to tell them what to do, work from the ground up. And they've embraced a lot of the things that you talked about, like designated teams. 
So my question for you is, sounds like you had a lot of those same issues at the main hospital. Were you able to sort of design things a little bit better sort of from the ground up at the surgery center? Like, yeah, it's, you that know, sort of help? Yeah, Jesse, it's, it's hilarious that you asked that because, or maybe it's really appropriate because <laughs> this is how an academic center may you know, mess up a uh, freestanding ambulatory surgery center. One, I would say it's probably too big, you know, right? So it's eight rooms and, and you guys know it sounds like some of the centers that are most productive are even you know, smaller than that, two, three, four rooms. But the, the other more relevant thing to what you said, Jess, is when we first got to the freestanding center, I'll give you one guess what they thought the nursing staff and the circulators and the scrubs should be doing, right? So, you know, they thought they should be doing everything, right? So it's real funny. One of our fellows, Andy Schwartz, who's going to the University of Iowa next year, he was with me sort of when we first were out there or his first rotation. And we had this running joke because like every week there'd be like somebody new in there. And, you know, we'd say, what do you usually do? And of course they'd say something like, oh, well, I would just do eyes. I just do ophthalmology. Usually. <laughs> or, you know, next week it's like, yeah, well, no, I'm, I'm pretty much out here just doing do urology. And so, it, you know, so we had to redo it. I will say, here's the difference. Smaller center, right? It's not the big giant hospital. It's not whatever the equivalent is for you guys. Like for us, it's big Duke University Hospital, or what's called Duke North. So it's smaller. So we do have a little more control. But what we had to do was go in and like say, these things they were doing, they clearly are not going to make us more efficient. They had to be educated on it. So you, that's the work you do. And it's real work, but it's, it's amazing. You know, we, we had to teach a lot of the same lessons again, but it happens quicker, right? Because it no longer is it person that decides is sitting in some office, um, never going down to the OR. Now it's say one of the center leaders that's there, that's 25 yards away. Right. And that's where I think it's evident we're going to be doing outpatient. We already are. We'll be doing more. You guys, this is like everyone knows that. And I think it's going to be good for us because of our ability to be in a smaller location where you really can't affect more effective local control. So hopefully you guys found that too, where you guys went, I hope. No, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's, that's an upside. And you know, the other thing, and Mike Barron used to always say this, and I, and I didn't quite get it, when he sort of we moved again in August of last year, a lot of our cases to the True Center. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. You probably interact more with your patient during their, like, short stay in the center before they get discharged same day because you're, like, again, 25 yards away. You walk yeah. over. You, say, you know, you see them, like, three or four times. But, like, at our main hospital, like, they go to recovery, and then they get moved somewhere else, and I can't even find – like, I don't know where anybody, anybody – I don't know where anybody is from today. But, you know, <laughs> I got to go find them here after we're done. But, no, I can find them on the computer. But it's crazy, right? So it's not the same – you know, they literally are – you know, it's, I think that's a good thing. I think patients like it, you know. So, I mean, that's the value added to them. I think uh, a decent number of our listeners are kind of still in that learner phase. And yeah. it's something that as they're kind of approaching – ending their training, getting a job, that kind of thing. I think it's always a challenge where people have grown to like the academic setup, the teaching, the research, that kind of thing, but they also want to go out and be efficient and kind of do the things that we talked about and do it well. What kind of advice do you give your residents, your fellows when they're looking for a job and kind of what, how do you guide them? Uh, is yeah. there something that you can speak to in that regard? Yeah, it's funny, right? We just finished fellowship interview season, right? So I like to ask folks what they want to do. And I always say, some of you guys may remember this, but <laughs> Lenny probably, but I like to ask, you know, what do you want to do? And I always preface it by saying, like, I think our fellowship's one where I hope you could do anything, right? You could come out of our fellowship and do private. You could be academic. You could be 
the ever popular uh, privademic, you know, <laughs> academic or whatever, right? And so I think people feel pressured because you're at maybe an academic center to say, well, I want to do academics. And, and, and of course, you, you can usually tell who means it. But it's the advice I give to get to that is you've got to figure out the academic piece. It's a real piece that if you don't figure it out, it won't work, right? I mean, so first of all, you got to be okay. Like, I mean, it's got to be okay to watch someone operate something, right? And, and that's not easy, man. That's then he's shaking his head, man. <laughs> but, but, but it's hard. And I think it gets easier and easier personally, but it's a skill. It's a very significant high, high level skill. Like, you know, if you can do that well, but honestly, no, I mean, so I think there's that piece, right? And then, you know, the, the, the how dedicated are you truly to research? Because most places it's a metric for you, right? Like for us, it's a real metric. So if you don't have those two pieces figured out and, and you sort of think, well, like, I like teaching the junior residents on my service. Like that's not probably enough, right? It's probably that, you know, it's, it's a little bit in you. It's a little bit, obviously you get excited about it, you know, and so you got to figure that piece. So if you don't have that piece, I think you say that my advice is like, look, don't even pursue it. Now, I do think there are some of these, I was joking, but these private jobs where anybody can sort of function in those spots or a lot larger group can. And so if you're really unsure, but you have the skill set for it, maybe that's where you go. And not that there's people that like hate academics. Nobody ever hates academics, right? But there are a percentage of folks that, you know, if you can figure it out when you're a resident or a fellow that you know you don't want to do academics, then it's an easy thing. Go get in a practice that's efficient. Go in a part of the country that's good for you and your significant other and family, whatever, and make sure, most importantly, that these are people you want to work with, right? They're people that you feel like would be your friends. There are people that you trust. You guys know the data on how people change jobs after two years and, and uh, spend the time to make sure it's a group of people that you respect and would want to be with. That's a long-winded answer of saying, like, figure it out yourself, I guess. But the reality is those folks, a lot of us on the call that go into academic jobs, right? You knew you were going to do that, right? I mean, maybe there was a point where you sort of said, well, I'm open to whatever, but you probably knew most of the time, right? And you probably said, well, I'm at least going to try, right? And if it doesn't work, I'll bail and go get a different job. And so I think being honest with yourself is probably the most important piece of advice. And, and you know, every year it's three or four fellows we're talking to and try to help them figure that out. So it's not an easy decision, right? Because it's becoming grayer. You know, we're talking about like the sort of, in academics, you guys know, I mean, we know more about probably the finances of hip and knee arthroplasty than certainly our more senior colleagues did 20 years ago, right? I mean, it's crazy, right? It's a complete change Having to have that, and think about the research a lot of us do, a lot of it's around the sort of financial aspects of hip and knee arthroplasty and, and, you know, whether it's bundle study and whether it's studying different payment models and looking at resource utilization and cost. I mean, those are things that are, those are for you guys. Those are the buzz topics right now for us to try to be uh, looking at, right? Maybe I'll uh, change directions a little bit. You've been in practice now for almost 20 years. I think it's probably thrilling for Lenny and Kevin and I to be chatting with you. Someone that's been around for two decades, but is still so excited about orthopedics and still so vibrant. So I got to ask you, like the next 20 years of your career, what are you most excited about in knee and hip arthroplasty? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you know, I hate to sort of be a little bit repetitive, but I mean, I I think it's this opportunity for us to drive care. And and Lenny brought it up about some of the topics we were sort of alluding to might get to. I mean, some of it's around the longitudinal disease-based bundle and the role we'll play in that, right? That's going to be a big change, you know, for us to say, like, to help develop uh, the care, say, for knee arthritis or a large group of patients that have knee arthritis and dictate that and drive that. So that stuff excites me a whole lot. I mean, it, it really does. I remain intrigued about further development of sort of the outpatient programs and pathways. I mean, I think 
we do a great job. You guys are at a center, you know, Kevin and, and Lenny, obviously that's uh, with Mike's work there. That is uh, helped lead the way as well. Should have referenced him also, but uh, but I think there's more to do to make that. We still have people fail to launch. There's these like predictable things we still haven't figured out. Hypotension, bladder issues, nausea, vomiting, right? So we're having, we still haven't figured stuff out. And then, you know, I mean, technology is always like, I don't want to say, well, like robotics, right? But I mean, like, I, I will tell you, and I'm not against robotics by any means, it's supportive. And I'm glad we're a center where we have a lot of that exposure for our, our fellows and residents. But there's probably something beyond even robotics, right? So those things, I mean, those sort of like three things really excite me. I think I'd cap it by saying, I think it shouldn't just be that we are doing things like a disease-based longitudinal bundle. I think we should be even past that. We should be, you know, it's again, a little bit of buzzword, but sort of orthopedic population health management. I mean, we, us four, I mean, we should be the type of people that set those models up, obviously benefit from those models. I just think it's a really interesting time for, you know, you keep hearing all these things about like how do doctors lose control? Or why are there administrators that control and dictate medicine? I just think the next 20 years are going to be this time where there's folks like you, guys and, and others are going to help us, I think, bring it back, you know, bring it back to the docs. And it's, it's time for that. It's uh, I'm not proposing like mutiny or anything like that, but like, no, but really like, like, like you're the doctor, right? You're the, nothing happening. Say, well, it's not, we have the hospital, nothing happens. You know, like they're ORs, they have the beds. No, you're the doctor. Nothing happens without you being in the equation. And it's time for us to grab that back. And, and I'm excited about Groups like YAG, that's going to be the force behind it, man. And I want to be in there fighting with you, but I won't do it without you guys, man. You know, and, and, and that's what's super exciting, right? Because it's almost like you can feel this little tipping point, right? Because it's so evident that we, we sort of like fell asleep at the wheel a little bit, right? We did. But now I think we're climbing back. I think we're, we're at this point where it's going to become really evident that a lot of these things that sort of they expect to have happen, they don't happen if we're not there. So that excites me a lot, really a lot. And I think that's one of one of our missions at, in YAG yeah. is to try to get people engaged because when you go through residency, it just seems so far away. You don't have to deal with this. Why would I deal with advocacy? Why would I care about bundled payments, all this kind of stuff? Because you're just focused on the next rotation thing. And so we're trying to capture these folks as they're coming up, coming through residency, coming through training. So they're coming out and just ready to hit the ground running when they hit their practice, whatever model that is, uh, just so we can hit it from all angles in that regard. Because as you point out, that's going to be the future of what we need to do to keep rolling. Right. But I mean, so it's exactly, but you know, you reference advocacy and like, you know, AUKUS does a lot of work in that space. There are funds spent from our members to work to protect, you know, our practices and try to protect obviously things as simple as say reimbursement. And the reality is we need to be even more of a voice than we are. And I know you guys understand that, but you can say, well, have we won every time or have we had any big wins in advocacy? It's probably more that we've protected ourselves from bigger hits or losses, right? So, but there's this opportunity, I think, for us to do even more than we've done today. You know, a lot of times we've been reactionary and we've sort of made great efforts when we saw sort of trouble on the horizon. I think we just got to keep pushing, you know, because the value we bring for patients with hip and knee arthritis, and you guys can quote these studies as good as anybody, but this is, you know, you can look at quality, you can look at sort of anything the laws about, you know, return to work and quality of life and function. Like it's huge. And I do think there's a growing understand that even at sort of levels of things like NIH and sort of some of the other larger groups where this reality about musculoskeletal care, let's not just say it's, you know, hip and knee arthroplasty, but the value to overall health of the population. I mean, we're a huge piece, right? You know, motion in life is a little bit, hokey. motion in life is a little bit hokey, but the reality is, 
Like it's evident, man. If what we do to keep people moving, functioning is huge for the health of the population in the world. And so, you know, again, advocating for ourselves to recognize the value we bring, we've still got work to do there, but we're so well positioned to sort of prove it. Like, again, we're continually collecting the data, have the data that makes that argument. We got to keep ringing our own bell, so to speak, but, but we should, right? Because you can't question what these procedures do for people. It's just, you can't. And then you guys know there's some things you can question, right? But not this, right? So it's, um, that's an opportunity still for us. No question. I'll keep going to the Hill, but we got to have more people up there with us, which uh, you, we need you guys to keep coming, you know? So, and that is something that probably won't change. If you guys think about the way sort of our life is uh, affected by things like the RUC and, and CMS and legislative sort of groups, we've got to do the advocacy part. We've got to keep pushing against entities like CMS uh, and CMMI, or, or I should say probably more like collaborating with and working with them. And again, supporting our value, proving our value and driving the models. That's we can't give up on that piece and we need more people to do it. And you say, you guys are asking, what can people do? Like this issue about how we, I guess, take control back or dictate the care or sort of create the model. We need YAG. We need the folks in YAG and, and others, you know, to, to help make those things happen. You know, and the, the framework can be set up by AUKUS leadership, but we, you know, that's the joke about boots on the ground. We got, yeah. we got to keep doing it, you know? Lenny, we got to get you. Gotta get you to I mean, Capitol Hill. You know? <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. It's amazing how there's going to be a whole paradigm shift as we try and own a disease. Yep. And, you know, when we think about as surgeons, we've gone through and selected a surgical subspecialty. And a lot of young surgeons and senior surgeons think, you know, I'm a surgeon. Why do I want to own yep. all of arthritis care? I'm a surgeon. I'm not a. So, how do yeah. you perceive yeah. us being able to convince doctors? that the heyday of sub surgical subspecialties is on the way out. COVID's yeah. drained a lot of money from the healthcare system. There's going to be a refocus on hopefully preventative medicine in the country and collaboration with primary care to try and drive down costs. I know Robert Pearl, he's going to be our presidential yeah. speaker this year. And he talks a lot about that. He did such a good job with Kaiser, but, but that's a scary system for a lot of private practice orthopedic surgeons that have relied on fee for service for a long time based upon the surgical care they do. So how do you convince a surgeon to do maybe non-surgical things or coordinate non-surgical stuff? Yeah, great question, Lenny. And, and so here's the way I think about that, because I, I did struggle. I mean, I've, you start, when we first start thinking about that, it, it's sort of like, yeah, I mean, I, I love being in the OR just like three of you. I think it speaks back to this realization that I know what they want to do about sort of the decreasing utilization of our procedures. Let's just say that. But I think in, the reality is that like, if you think of the volume that's out there to do, like we're still going to operate, right? Yeah. We're going to operate, right? And everybody gets worried whether they're going to tell us we can't operate. Well, that's not going to, I, again, maybe I'm being a little bit too <laughs> trustworthy, but I, people are going to want their hips and knees replaced, right? Will you maybe not do some of the patients you currently do? Maybe, maybe, right? Maybe, you know, because of whatever stratification you move to, you don't. It's not like all of a sudden we're not going to operate. But I think we've got to sort of jump in and be at least in control or oversight of the non-operative or the conservative yeah. care. And, and that's the point because you want to drive, Jess, you want to drive it, you know, Kevin, you want to drive it instead of saying primary care drive, right? Because yeah. they're interested in driving it. Let me just tell you there, I mean, there's great interest from other groups besides orthopedics. So again, I think this is this time, right? As these things get proposed, 
CMS, say, let's, or sorry, let's say CMMI comes out with their two-year knee arthritis bundle and it's voluntary to start. And like, we want to do it, right? You want to do it? Like, you guys do it, right? You already do it. Do you, do you do any conservative knee arthritis management in your clinic? Of course. All right. Of right? <laughs> right. Without a doubt. Right. Right. And, you know, at our shop, we've figured out how to maybe create a model that we think maybe makes it a little more cost efficient. We've, it's called the Joint Health Program, where it's set up by Bill Duranic, former AUKUS president as well, and one of my partners named Chad Mather. And basically, that's a non-operative, I guess, a care pathway for knee arthritis. And the goals of that program is to delay surgery or get you ready for surgery, right? And it's sort of putting all the conservative care options that are out there sort of under one roof. And the providers, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. The providers are physical therapists. Those are the providers for that program. That's a way. I'm not saying that's the way you have to do it. You do it with extenders, et cetera, ATCs, whatever. But like we should set those programs up, right? Like we should be the ones that drive the, just because we're surgeons doesn't mean we can't take care. Like it's the easiest thing you can do is to take care of, you know, knee arthritis. I think you'll still be operating. I just don't see, I just don't see how you're not going to be. But again, maybe I'm being dumb about it, but the numbers don't make sense to me that all of a sudden we're not going to be operating. But I think we got to control the other piece. Then we're in control. That's part of grabbing back what maybe we gave up. Yeah, and I think it's good. It's good for patients. You know, Kevin and I, and I'm sure Jesse, you see this too. We all do. Anybody that does revisions sees people that were inappropriately indicated, right? Yeah. You get people that were operated on too soon, too early because of whatever pressures. And if you can set up some systems where you're appropriately modifying things and delaying surgery until it's necessary, or at least the the chance of winning is, is there. I mean, it's, it's better for everybody involved, the whole healthcare system. So I think Amen. it'd be nice that way. I've got a sort of a bit of a two-part question on those topics. So one is, is the non-operative MSK care covered by the payers? And the reason I ask that is in Canada, the healthcare system is provincially based. So OHIP in Ontario, where yep. I live, they don't pay for any pre-op physiotherapy. We had a trial of the GLAD program, the Good Living with Osteoarthritis program designed in Denmark. It was a pilot covered by OHIP and then the funding dried up and now patients again have to pay out of pocket and a lot of our patients don't have that. So the first question is, is that part of the bundle of care for that payers are paying for. And then the second part of the question is, is there an opportunity for hospitals like Duke, Indiana University to develop their own non-operative orthopedic group, say, you know, a physiotherapy clinic or a constellation of clinics where you could actually potentially make money for your, your own healthcare system to provide some of that care? Yeah, those are great questions. And so here's sort of where I'd say, I think we are. So I think you will at some point, I don't know the exact time, but I don't think it's far off because I saw an early version of this probably about three or four years ago when we went to CMMI of a two-year longitudinal bundle for knee arthritis, right? So that's just the non-operative care and even a set amount, like just almost like a, you know, like CJR bundle, a payment just for those two years of care. And it was probably a pretty good number, just so you know, I don't want to get like I don't know, something bad would happen to me if I tell you what it is, I think. <laughs> Non-disclosure thing I signed. But but I would tell you, I thought it was a very fair payment for two years of non-op care. Like really fair. Okay. And that's another reason I'm telling you, like we should be in charge of this, right? So I think my guess is a lot, lot like how bundle projects, you know, a lot of it started with BCPI and CJR. I think that that's coming and that'll come as a from CMMI, CMS as something where whether they start with mandatory centers like CJR was, or, you know, mandatory metropolitan centers, 
or if they do a voluntary thing, we'll see. I think the payers are going to follow very quickly. And certainly in our area, some like Blue Cross Blue Shield are sort of already moving towards opportunities like that. And again, I think you as North Peak Surgeon want to be the people that are ready to quote, take, I guess you could call it, take on that risk, right? Your question about can you set these up sort of on your own and make money? I would say the answer is yes. That program I referenced here, you know, because of our arrangement, physical therapy is sort of under the health system. So like, does the money come straight to orthopedics? You know, n- not not completely. There's there's obviously funds that get passed back and forth to recognize the effort that orthopedics put into building the, the program and also obviously the patient referral from orthopedics into the program that make it successful. I would tell you, I would recommend you get into that space as you're able to uh, personally, because it's sort of like this. It's like having an extension of your practice that's doing conservative care, right? Under your oversight, if you will, or your practice's oversight, your division's oversight, your department's oversight, and you're still an orthopedic surgeon doing hip and knee replacement, right? So I understand like where the first question I think came from Lenny about like, well, I didn't train to be doing injections. Well, I mean, you know how to do injections, right? And you're not going to necessarily be the person doing the injections. You know what I mean? Like, it's just be in the position that you're over top of that. You are managing that. You set that up. That's, I would really say, I hope we don't miss the boat on that because I think it's coming. You guys know that. Like, this approach to not just making it sort of a procedure-based bundle, is it's coming. It's coming. I don't think no matter what we do. So anything else that you wanted to make sure we touched on today or thoughts that you want to share with the audience? Well, maybe just a little selfishly about, you know, AUKUS and the importance of it. I mean, I would say if you look back and sort of try to educate yourself a little bit about why AUKUS was developed or how it came about, you know, a lot of that was about advocacy and the intent of the the folks that founded it was not just advocacy, but sort of looking at sort of protecting payments for docs. And it's pretty interesting, right? I mean, we still are doing those as part of the mission, obviously. If you think about the three sort of pillars of AUKUS, and we know it's a great meeting. We know it's a, sort of the highlight scientifically, right? But it's also at its heart, an entity that is, again, it's supposed to be taking care of all of our members that are hip and knee surgeons, you know, hip and knee arthroplasty surgeons. And I know you guys are already drinking the Kool-Aid, but I implore you and others and the folks that follow you to recognize its importance, its value. And don't forget that piece, I mean, that it is about the day-to-day too, right? I mean, a lot of things that we're trying to address that comes through a committee that comes up to the, say, board of directors or, or presidential line, I mean, it's about protecting this incredibly rewarding field that we're in, right? I mean, you can always make the joke about if you have a bad day in clinic, just remember you're not like a spine clinic or something, right? So <laughs> I have a lot of good friends that are spine surgeons, so I don't want to offend them when this plays. But no, but look at it, man. I mean, you know, um, uh, to YAG, man, I'm, I'm so excited you you guys and girls exist. You're the future of it. It's an obvious thing. And I'm, I'm just impressed with what the group's already done. And it makes me feel really good about the hands Ockles will be in when I'm wheelchaired into the annual meeting in Dallas. Uh, no, I, I think that's it, man. I just, uh, for folks coming in, I would say, man, please reach out to me. I've had it. I've offered to do that numerous times and people have taken me up on it. If there's some, if some way you think I can help try to plug you into stuff or advice and, and I mean that to, to, to any any member, any YAG member, any young AUKUS member, but want to help. We can't keep doing this incredible thing we are doing if we don't have the next generation come along and make it even better, which is happening, right? I mean, it's, you know, the way we do this now compared to 20 years ago, it's remarkable, right? And we got to do like another version of that. So good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
I, yeah. I don't think we can let you off the hook too easily. Yes, so I, yes. I got to ask you any, yes. any, any good uh, coach Brown stories for us? Oh, coach Mac Brown. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, man, I don't know if we have enough time, but um, no, but um, yeah, I mean, he's an exceptional person, man. I'll tell you what, huge mentor to me. And just, he was uh, my first season we were there. It was, uh, this is interesting. You'll get a kick out of this. We were one in 10. Yeah. That was his second one in 10 season. So the year before, the year before I entered there and was on the team, they were one, so they're two and 20. And interestingly, they kept them at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. And so, which can you imagine these days if you were two and 20? I mean, so credit to the school back then. Of course, he, you know, when he left, they were 11 and one and maybe a game away from being in the sort of one top tier bowls those year. But I'll tell you something. They have a thing they talk about now that he likes to call the decision the kids make around coming to UNC to, to play for him called the 40 year decision. And I think it really, I don't want to be too serious, but it really resonates home, right? I mean, that 40-year decision, and it's obviously not just about sports, it's what you do after. I mean, from a standpoint of work ethic and time management, all that stuff, I wouldn't have had a clue if I hadn't sort of gone through four years under him when I tried to get in going through med school and residency and all that stuff. You guys know how valuable that stuff is. But uh, it's great to have him back, man. He's incredibly positive and energized guy. At his age, to be doing what he's doing, it's very inspirational. It makes me realize I got a lot of ways to go. <laughs> they got to get over the hump. They seem to always be in the mix for. I know. Uh, I know. You know, I know. For first I... ten weeks, and then they keep falling off. I'm a UNC fan because of Vince Carter. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure, of he course. Was in Toronto, but uh, yeah, I was gonna. I'll, I'll give you one Coach K story just because he also a patient. I don't think he'll mind sharing this, but he had pretty bad varus knees, really bad, and we did. Then did them staged. I can't remember the years, a couple, you know, three to four years ago. And um, so he did one, did his left, and he's straight, you know, pretty straight. Left him in a little bit of Varus, a little gentleman's Varus, as we said. No, <laughs> no, but he's nice and corrected. And they were pretty bad, actually. That's pretty tough. And then um, his other one was not corrected yet. So he, he made the joke. He sort of stood in front of me, pulled his leg up, and he said, If you look at me from behind, you can see this. If you look at my leg, one straight, one still Varus. It looks like a D, doesn't it? D for dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, anyway, no, it's good. Well, thank you guys, man. It's been fun to be honest. It's cool. Really, really fun conversation. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you really so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate advocate and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.